Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God lives in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord's with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed the judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits inequity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Father God, as we open your word tonight, and as we meditate on your steadfast love to your servant David, I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself known to us. I pray that you would make that gracious love known to us. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but Lord, remind us of your unfailing and gracious love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the true son of David, amen. Well, good evening. It is uh, blistering hot <laughs> and you are, you're surviving, you're making it. You haven't died yet from this insane, insane heat. So congratulations, keep on going. Maybe we'll make it through this. Maybe in November we can say we survived all this crazy weather. <clears throat> We're in this series um, in the books of First and Second Samuel talking about becoming a people and how God forms a people, calls a people to himself, raises up leaders for his people, and especially his servant, David. And we come tonight to this passage which is certainly the high point of David's life, and in many ways is the apex, the highest point of the entire Old Testament. 
Everything from Genesis 1 through the fall, the call of Abraham, leads to this moment. And things kind of start falling apart for Israel after this moment. It's a big deal. And it's easy for us, if we're familiar with this story, maybe to skip to the ending. That passage is about Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus. Done. We can all go home now. But it's important not to skip to the ending. I have a five-year-old daughter, her name is Eleanor, and she likes to ask us, um, my wife and I, about our wedding. What was your wedding like? What did you wear? So she has all these questions, but as soon as we start telling the story, she wants us to skip all the way from the wedding to when she showed up, which is a span of years, and there's lots of details in between from our wedding to when she showed up. But for her, the wedding is just about her, right? That's a story about her. And that's how sometimes we can approach the Old Testament. Well, that's a story about us, and we forget that it meant something to David. It certainly meant something to the people of Israel. And what I want to encourage us tonight is if we look at what it meant for David and what it meant for the people of Israel, we'll come to a deeper understanding of what it means for us. This is a passage, this is a story about the steadfast love of God. Hesed, covenant love the unfailing, unshakable love of God. God's covenants are always tied together with this word, hesed, covenant love. God promises himself to people. He makes certain promises. He says, this is what I will do. And this is a passage about that. So for David, the meaning of this story is a promise of gracious security. He doesn't have to worry about his dynasty. God's got it taken care of. He knows that his sons will be taken care of after him. For Israel, this is a promise of enduring hope, even in the darkest circumstances, even in the midst of exile. And for us, it's the promise of unfailing love, both in the first coming of Christ as the true son of David, and as we wait, as we pray as the church, come Lord Jesus, as we wait for the son of David to come again and to establish that heavenly Jerusalem. So let's first look at the meaning of this story for David. So over the last couple of weeks, a lot has happened in the, David, uh, the story of David. He's established his uh, rule in Jerusalem. He's conquered the city of Jerusalem. He's been crowned the king over both the peoples of Judah and all the rest of the peoples of Israel. And last week, he brought the ark back from its exile with the Philistines into the city of David, and he danced before the Lord, and he established the true worship of God He also has had the opportunity to build a house out of cedar cedar from the king of Tyre. So David has accomplished all of this, and he's sitting back, and he's looking on his work. And like many ancient Near Eastern kings, he thinks, okay, now is the time when you build a temple. You build a temple for the God who has made all of this possible. So David shares this idea with the prophet, Nathan, who will become very important in next week's story. So watch out for Nathan. But Nathan the prophet says, that sounds like a great idea. Go, do what's in your heart. Build a temple for the Lord. But God has another idea. And that is hugely important for us. The fact that God has something else in mind. The fact that he's not like the other gods of the nations around Israel. He wants something else. So God sends Nathan back to David and says, hey, I've got something else in mind. Look at verse 8. 
Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is the Lord speaking to Nathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. David says, I wanna do something from the Lord, and the Lord says to David, no, I wanna do something for you. I want to make your name great, like the great ones of the earth. David had said, I wanna build you a house, and God inverts the whole proposition. He says, no, I'm gonna build you a house. It's a pun on all the meanings of the word house. House can mean a literal building, like a temple, and it can also mean a dynasty of kings. So if you think of the house of Windsor, that's the dynasty of kings and queens who are currently those who rule over England. The house of David is a dynasty. This is a huge issue for any king in any time, but especially in the ancient Near East where things could get bloody and violent and dynasties could switch rather quickly. God is promising David something that's almost unthinkable. I'm gonna make you a house, I'm gonna establish your son, and guess what, he's gonna rule forever. How can God promise this? So he says, I'm gonna build you a house. I will give you rest. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is something that God is doing. It's not something that David is doing. God is making a unilateral guarantee that he will faithfully love David and that he will faithfully love the sons of David for all time. He will not treat David or his sons like Saul. That's a specific contrast that God makes. He says, I removed myself from Saul, but that will never be the case for your sons. Even when they sin, I will not remove my steadfast love, my covenant love, my chesed from them. So don't miss this. God's love for David is not conditioned on what David had done up to this point. And it is certainly not conditioned on what David will do after this because that's when it all starts to fall apart. And again, this is in massive contrast to the stories in the ancient Near East where conquering kings established temples for their gods. And in those exchanges, the gods say, if you make me a house and I like it, then we'll see how it goes. It's conditional. It's not conditional between Yahweh and his servant, David. He is the one who loves. He is the one who builds. He is the one who gives rest to his people. So God's grace towards David is his grace towards his whole people, Israel, and towards us. Again, David has done well up to this point. He has been faithful. He refused to kill Saul twice when he had ample opportunity. He refused to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed. He's done well but his life is about to blow up. Next week, we'll read the story of David and Bathsheba. Adultery, conspiracy, murder. Then we get into the sections of ineffectual parenting, David as bad dad. He's a terrible father. We get into sections about bad political maneuvering, a census that he takes. And all these things are just around the corner from him. And yet, even in the midst of this moment, God says, I will be faithful to you. I will not remove my love from you. 
And it's not just a promise to love David, it's a promise to love his sons. Now think about his sons. Absalom kills another one of his brothers and then starts a coup and rides into Jerusalem as if he's the king. That's one of his sons. Adonijah, to establish himself as king, sleeps with his father's harem, which is a particularly bold political move in the ancient Near East. And Solomon, who is the immediate successor and fulfillment of this prophecy, Solomon, he's the one who builds the house for God, right? What does he do? He takes to himself all these foreign wives and he begins the false worship of those gods. Within a generation, that's what's happening. And God says, I will love you and I will love them with unfailing covenant love. Within two generations, the kingdom will divide under David's grandson, the Solomon's son. It'll split into Israel and Judah. Within a generation, that happens. And yet God troves himself to David and to his line in unconditional grace. And in selecting David, he selects his people, Israel. And that's its meaning for Israel. And that is why it is a promise of unfailing hope. It isn't just good news for David, it's good news for his people. Look at verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God ties his promises to David, also to a promise to his people. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of son of men, but I will not remove my steadfast love from him. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is spoken of as God's son. From the time of the Exodus forward, the whole of the people is spoken of as an adopted son. The king of Israel is spoken of as God's son. And God adopts the king of Israel. And so adopting the king of Israel, he adopts all of his people. The son of God is the true king of Israel and the true representative of Israel. And if you're thinking, well, Jesus is the son of God, ding, 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 you've got it. See, we tend to think of that phrase purely in terms of Jesus's divinity, but son of God means he's the true heir of David in addition to him being divine. It means that he's David's heir. So in Psalm chapter two, a coronation Psalm, when it says, when God says to the king of Israel, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's about him adopting his people through the adoption of his king. It's unfailing love to a whole people. The fate of David's house is the fate of the people. Now, today's exciting for me because I get to talk about the Old Testament and I'm about to talk about Lord of the Rings. So you may not be excited, but I'm very excited because I'm talking about Lord of the Rings because I think Tolkien captures the dynamics of these, this waiting and anticipation for the true king to come back. See, in Lord of the Rings, there's a prophecy that there will be an heir of a king, Isildur, and that that heir will defeat the Dark Lord, Aragorn. And this Aragorn, most people know as Strider. And he's just a guy who walks around in the woods. 
He's not anybody. Who cares about Strider? But for those who know the stories, that know the Lord, they know that he is a Dunedain, a son of the great people of Numenor. He is Aragorn. He is the one who will reforge the sword that had once defeated the Dark Lord and will defeat him again. They know their history. And so when they see Aragorn, they see a great king. That's how it is for Israel too. When they see David's son, they see their fate. They know that their fate and what happens to them is tied up with what happens to David's line. So in Lord of the Rings, generations and generations have passed and hope has dimmed to a smoldering wick. And yet this air emerges and there is once again hope. That's exactly what happens in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The decline of David's line and those kings lead his people into exile, an exile that even when they come back into the land, they never are really delivered from. The kings never are really kings again. They're more like vassals. And this is why there is an electric atmosphere of expectation when Jesus shows up. This is why blind Bartimaeus says, son of David, heal me. He knows what he's waiting for. So the question on everybody's mind and the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament is when will David's true son emerge? When will he come? When will he restore the kingdom of Israel? Think about this when you read a passage like the triumphal entry, where a son of David rides victoriously on a donkey into the city of David. Think of what they were hoping for in that moment. That's why they're singing and shouting and throwing palm branches at him because they think that the moment has come. So this moment of hope for them, for Israel, becomes the point in time that they point back to over and over and over again. And it's in our Psalm for today, Psalm 89. Steadfast love, love will not depart from David. And in a couple of verses that we didn't read, Israel takes that prayer, that promise, and turns it back on the Lord and turns it into petition. And they say, how long, O Lord? This is from the place of exile. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. That's Psalm 89, verse 49. Lord, where is your covenant love? Where is that hesed? Where is that unfailing promise? See, it was good news for them, but even in that darkest moment, they had to, they had to cling to something and they had to cry out to God. And in that crying out, God heard them. And that moves us to the meaning of this promise for us. This is how we get to Jesus. This is how we get to the true son of David. So with all of that in mind, hear anew these words that an angel said to a small, frightened little girl in Nazareth, a daughter of the line of David, betrothed to a man of the line of David. Hear these words of Gabriel. He says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. What is Gabriel doing if not repeating back 2 Samuel 7 to Mary and saying, your son, he's the one. After all these dodos of generations who threw it all away, here's the one who will restore the throne of David. So we now have this true son of David. We can look to him. We can look to his death, his burial, his resurrection. We can see the ways that he has defeated the enemies of God so that he might give us rest. He has fulfilled the deepest meaning of the Lord's promise to David. And yet, and yet, and yet, even we like Israel wait for the complete fulfillment of it when the heavenly Jerusalem will come when he returns again. And that's why it's so important for us to think about Psalm 89 is not just a prayer that Israel prayed, but a prayer that we pray and say, how long, how long, O Lord? How long will you forget your steadfast love? It's why the church prays at the end of the book of Revelation, even now, so Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. So we pray with Israel and say, how long? But we remember too this hesed, this unfailing love that is unbreakable. One commentator put it so well when he said, of this covenant, of this love, death does not annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. Time will not exhaust it. Death does not annul the unfailing love of God. Sin does not destroy the unfailing love of God. Time will not exhaust the unfailing love of God. That's chesed, that's covenant love. That's what God promised to David, to his sons, and fulfilled in his own son, Jesus Christ. Death does not annul it, sin cannot destroy it. Time will not exhaust it. Some nights, read my daughters from the Jesus, read my daughters from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in that Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Jones always talks about chesed, and she puts it like this. What is God's unfailing love? It means that God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Death does not annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. Time will not exhaust it. So from top to bottom, and it's immediate meaning, it's meaning for people of Israel, it's meaning for us, this is a passage about grace. It's a passage about God's unfailing promise to his people. So where does that leave us? How do we respond? Davis, David gives us a clue because he responds. The rest of the cha chapter seven in 2 Samuel is David's prayer of response. I encourage you to go home and read the whole thing. It's a model of how to respond to grace, how to accept the grace of God. And I'm just gonna read you the first couple of verses. Then King David, after he'd heard these words, went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. 
O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now the meaning of that phrase, instruction of, for mankind, is a little bit ambiguous, but this is what I think David is getting at. He's saying, Lord, the way that you have just responded to me is how you wanna to respond to everyone. It's an instruction for mankind. Not just a promise to me, not just a promise to Israel, but a promise to the whole world. David's response is humble. That's the only way we can accept grace is with humility and say, who am I? I don't deserve this. Why me? And yet, this is a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord, because this is just who you are. David, with humility, goes and sits before the ark of the Lord, and he says, thank you. But he also says, this is who you are. He recognizes that this is the very character of God, that the way that the Lord is treating him is the way that he intends to treat all of humanity. So I would leave you with that, just as an encouragement that often we can think of grace in very abstract terms. It's this thing that God you know, gives us, or what is it? Is it a substance, is it a thing? What's grace? But grace is always tied to covenant, to the specific actions and history that God has done for his people. So in our moments of doubt, in our moments of hopelessness, we look back to his faithfulness to David, to Israel, preserving his people even in the midst of exile. So that's one. We look back in hope, but we also come together, come into his presence with humility and say, who are we? As we become a people, St. Bartholomew's, that has to be our posture. If this is gonna do, we're gonna do anything, that has to be it. Who are we? Who are we, Lord God? And yet, this is a small thing in your eyes because this is what you do and this is what you have done. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that give us hope, that assure us of your character, of your goodness, and most of all, of your unfailing, unbreakable love. We pray that like David, we could come before you in humility, to receive what you have for us, to receive your grace, and even now to humbly accept your grace anew, knowing that we can't do anything without it. We will never be established without it. We will never go anywhere without it. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.